You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew, chapter 24. We read beginning with verse 1, we'll read to verse 3. Matthew 24, verse 1. Coming out of the temple, Jesus was going along, and His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him. And He answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Let's go to our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning we have to gather together and give you our worship for the strength and the encouragement and the blessing that we receive from being together. Your church gathered together, worshiping together. Lord, this is a means, uh, a mighty means that you have chosen for the health and well-being of your sheep. We are aware, Lord, the more we grow in our knowledge of you, the more we grow in our knowledge of your word, the more we grow in our knowledge of ourselves and of the world around us, we are aware that every day for us as your people is life lived in a war zone, a spiritual war zone. This world is not a safe place when it comes to spiritual matters. So that, Lord, we recognize that the only thing that explains our salvation and our continuance is you. So grateful that we're safe in your hand. Lord, you even tell us you regulate our tests so that nothing we face is beyond what You have made us ready for and You are sufficient for in us and through us. And so, Lord, as we gather together, this is a part of that. This is a part of You, Your ongoing work in us, conforming us to the image of Jesus and keeping us safe until our journey is over. So we give You praise. We joyfully acknowledge that I can't preach apart from Your help and we can't learn apart from Your help. So Lord, would your mighty power be on display in the life of your church, even in this next hour, as your word goes forth. Would you grant clarity of speech and insight and understanding even as we encounter your holy word. Pray for those, Lord, who don't know you. We ask for salvation even this day, that someone who doesn't know Jesus would come to know you today through faith in your Son. But we need this next hour. We gather as your people those whom you have already saved, and we need this time. So feed our souls, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not supposed to be this way. You ever had that thought run through your mind? Maybe even those words come out of your mouth? Or maybe you've said it like this, you've said, this is not what I expected. This is not what I expected. This is a very common thing in the Christian life that we find our expectations in conflict with what is true, with what God has chosen to do. What's especially interesting about that is how often we find our expectations disappointed when our minds have been biblically instructed. I mean, I don't know why our expectations would be so misinformed given the fact we have the Word of God. And the Word of God is clear. And yet there we are, confused, in conflict with ourselves in a sense because what we expected isn't the way that it is. Well, what is clear throughout these Gospel accounts and what becomes clearer as Jesus approaches the time when He will lay down His life to save us is that the disciples were dealing with disappointed expectations. They were in conflict with what they expected. And so our Lord goes on loving them 
by patiently informing their expectations and clarifying what, what he's been telling them all along, but what they're still unclear about. That's what we have as we enter into our study of the Olivet Discourse, beginning with Matthew 24, verse 1. The questions intended to entrap Jesus, he has answered. He's answered them in a way that has displayed the truth about him. He has answered them in a way that has displayed his superiority, his divine nature. He has answered those questions in a way that has left them speechless. He has gone on to expose the wickedness that explains their unbelief, that explains their attempts to entrap him. He has summed up their character. In their own hearing, he has told them who they are, and he has warned them about the judgment that they're facing. And yet their stubborn, wicked unbelief persists. So that finally, as he finishes a series of woes that he pronounces, he ends that long section of denouncement, he ends it with an impassioned cry over his desire that had been different. Verse 37, chapter 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you did not want it. You did not want it. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. That statement found in verse 38, your house is being left to you desolate, I believe hung in the minds of Christ's disciples. They're thinking about this. I say that because as they leave the temple, he's arrived there in the morning, he's taught throughout the day, he's encountered these religious leaders, these false religious leaders who seek to entrap him and murder him. Coming out of the temple, verse 1 of chapter 24, as he's going along, his disciples are talking about the temple buildings. Your house is being left to you desolate, probably in reference to the temple. He says that. And they can't get their minds around it. What does he mean, your house is being left to you desolate? So that the temple buildings are on their minds and they are going to comment on this and their comments not only express their own thoughts about it, but perhaps also what they're doing in a sense is saying, let's mention these buildings to see what else he will say about what he's just said. What does he mean? Your house is being left to you desolate. And so they have questions and Jesus has answers and his answers make up what we now refer to as the Olivet Discourse. It's called that, as you know, because he gives this teaching on the Mount of Olives. Verse 3, now as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen? And on the account goes and he gives this teaching. This is the longest answer that Jesus gives to a question in all of the gospel accounts, the longest answer recorded in Scripture. It's good for us to remember that Jesus has already said a lot about what is coming in the future. What makes this section amazing is here you have Jesus during His time on the earth laying out the future, which of course points us to the truth about His person. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Well, He is the one who is able to tell us the end from the beginning. He's the one who's able to lay out the future before it happens. Tells us exactly what is going to take place. Which includes what's going to happen with the temple buildings, but also goes far beyond the temple complex. Tells us about a judgment that is going to happen soon on the city of Jerusalem. But also tells us about the judgment that is awaiting at the end of the age and about the salvation that will take place at the same time when He returns. Now we know that to be in the distant future. So here He is talking about things to happen over 2,000 years later. All of this points us to who He is. This is the Son of God. This is God come to earth. But this is not the first time that He's talked about things that were coming in the future. He already told His disciples He would make His way to the city of Jerusalem, that He would be rejected that He would be tried, that He would be crucified 
that he would then be raised from the dead and would leave them for a time. The disciples heard these things. They are informed, but their understanding reveals they didn't really grasp it. Their questions will reveal they didn't really grasp it. Biblically informed, but their expectations still in conflict with what is happening. This is not what we expected. And so Jesus will answer their questions. One of the things that stands out to me, I thought about this as I studied this again this week, how our Lord is completely calm about what His disciples don't grasp, knowing that they will get it when He means for them to get it. He's going to teach them. He's going to answer their questions. He's going to explain things as they are, all the while in God's sovereign plan, knowing that they will grasp it when they are meant to grasp it. So what he tells them is the truth, but they don't yet really understand it. The questions that the disciples will ask in this section, if you can't tell already, today, this morning is more of a foundation for what we're going to begin to dig into deeper tonight. But the questions they're going to ask him reveal their confusion. And some of their confusion is fueled by the messianic expectations of their day. What they had been taught, what they were expecting, what most of the Jewish people were expecting. You read the gospel accounts and it becomes clear this was a time of increased messianic fervor. This is a time where the hopes regarding Israel's Messiah are on fire. I mean, there's a sense in which the Messiah is coming soon, even before Jesus arrived. This was already there, this expectation. Just remember the scene at the temple when Jesus was dedicated, the prophecies that were spoken there. Remember the ministry of John the Baptist, hordes of people following him out even into the wilderness. Such was their hunger and desire and hope. Remember the throngs of people following Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. Remember his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem and people crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. I mean, their messianic expectations are on display there, the hope, the desire, it's at a fever pitch. And here is Jesus, the Messiah, the one for whom they had waited, whether they recognized that or not. He is different than they expect. You talk about, this is not what I expected. Well, Jesus is not what they expected as they're looking for the Messiah. Of course, in many ways, He superseded. He, he went far beyond what they expected. This was one of the questions that Jesus asked the religious leaders in that temple encounter. Let me ask you a question. How is it that David referred to the Messiah as his Lord? How can the Messiah be both David's son and his Lord? And they didn't have an answer because this blew their minds. This is not what they expected. Not God come to earth. Not God in human flesh. This is not the Messiah they expected. But even as Jesus lived and spoke and ministered, people often commented on, on how amazing He was in terms of what they expected. No one ever spoke like this man, they said. No one is, from the beginning of the world, has it been heard that someone opened the eyes of one born blind. He preaches with an authority unlike anything we've ever heard. We hear our various teachers teach. We, we don't hear anyone speak with the kind of authority that He speaks with. He interacted with people in a way that revealed an amazing knowledge of them. Nathaniel, amazed when Jesus talked about he had seen him under a tree, and obviously what was on display was a, a revelation of divine knowledge. And Jesus says to him, are you amazed that I said this to you? You're going to see greater things than this. I mean, people amazed as he knew them, knew situations in a way that reflected divine knowledge interpreted the law of God in a way that caused their hearts to burn. He got to the very heart of the law of God. Didn't deal with it in some superficial way, but got to the very heart of the law. His preaching was the most preeminent aspect of his ministry, and yet it was accompanied by signs that even his critics couldn't deny. Nicodemus comes to him by night and says, Teacher, we know you're from God because no one could do the signs you do unless God's with him. An honest man 
acknowledging the fact that what Jesus does is indisputable. No one can say that it's some sort of um, magical show. This is real. And so into this world full of messianic hope comes this one who supersedes anything they ever expected. At the same time, in some ways, he disappointed what they expected. He's not what they expected. He didn't arrive to advance the Judaism of the day. He didn't arrive to affirm the religious leaders of the day. He doesn't affirm their leaders. He exposes them as false shepherds. He's not championing their agenda. He's not leading a revolution like they want. He's not a military deliverer like they want. In fact, he's saying things like, my kingdom is not of this world. This is not what they expected. He's talking about being, even with his own disciples, their expectations are in conflict because he's talking about things like being crucified and then raised from the dead and going away for a time. They don't understand that. At one point they ask, where are you going? We don't know the way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He didn't come to join their team. He's exposing their team. Exposing their need for salvation. And so not only are unbelievers struggling with their false expectations, but His own disciples are experiencing a conflict because things are not going exactly as they expected. And so eventually, as we know, He is rejected by His own. He came to His own, His own did not receive Him. Died on the cross, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, coming again one day. And in Matthew 24, He's going to lay out God's program for the world until He returns. This is God's glorious way of saving sinners. And through all of this, as is true with virtually every sermon I could preach in the Gospels, through all of this, the main point of the sermon this morning is, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. This is what we see. We see our Lord on display as we begin looking at the Olivet Discourse. This morning we have two points. The first one is this. Notice the temple and its future. The temple and its future. Christ's words begin in that now, in that time in history. The first things He's going to talk about have to do with something right on the horizon. Not a judgment that's not far away. Verse 1, in coming out from the temple... Jesus was going along, and His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him. And He answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. His public ministry is over. He's not going to return to the temple to preach and teach again. This is what he said in chapter 23, verse 39, For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a sad, there's a sadness about this. So I said, Jesus was sad when he considered the spiritual blindness of the people of Israel summed up by the city of Jerusalem. He would have gathered them under his wings, but they did not want him. And he talks about the house being left desolate. As I said, I think this is on the minds of the disciples. And so as they're walking out of that temple complex, making their way east of the temple to the Mount of Olives, the disciples are talking about the buildings. Maybe wanting to see, will Jesus say more about this? But they're not just talking about the buildings. They're delighting in those buildings. The house of the Lord left desolate. This is the temple of the Lord. Are you saying it's going to be destroyed again? These are beautiful buildings. Now Matthew doesn't talk about this aspect of it. There are comments on the beauty of the buildings. But Mark and Luke's account tells us that they were pointing out the beauty of those buildings. Mark 13, verse 1, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Luke 21, verse 5, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said. We've never seen it. 
But it's not just the Bible that tells us that the temple of Christ's day was beautiful. History tells us the same. In fact, these buildings were almost unsurpassed from the standpoint of external beauty at that time in history. This is Herod's temple, Herod the Great, the man who first served as governor of Galilee. Later, he's made the sole ruler in Judea by the Romans, took to himself the title king. He decided to expand and beautify what had been constructed after the Jewish exiles returned from Babylon. And so for about 50 years, this beautification expansion building project had been going on. Even at the time of Jesus, there's beautification taking place. In fact, that building process carried on almost up to the time when it was all torn down by the Romans in A.D. 70. But even at this time, by the time of Christ, that complex was one of the most magnificent, beautiful things in the entire world. Herod was famous for his building projects. He saw it as a way to leave his legacy, and this one was magnificent. Constructed though, isn't it? You have these beautiful buildings, so beautiful even the disciples of Jesus comment on it, yet what was taking place within those buildings was offensive to God. Twice Jesus had cleansed the temple, making clear that what was taking place inside that complex wasn't pleasing the Lord. Mark 11, verse 17, He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. These beautiful buildings house the activity of thieves. Interesting that the disciples specifically mentioned the stones of the temple complex. We're told that those stones were white and they were massive. Brilliant white and massive. D. Edmund Hebert wrote this, According to Josephus, part of it was built of strong white stones, each measuring 25 cubits long, eight high and about 12 in breadth. Now, if you just take those measurements, some of those stones would have been 37 and a half feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. That's a massive stone. We think that's probably an exaggeration. Just looking at what is left, probably an exaggeration, but there's no doubt the stones were massive, massive. Hebrew goes on to say, the plural buildings denotes the temple proper, as well as the various courts with their chambers and magnificent colonnades, all of which rested on the platform which Herod the Great had constructed for the enlarged temple area. Luke mentioned also the costly votive offerings with which the temple was decorated. Luke 21 verse 5, the Herodian temple was recognized as one of the architectural wonders of the Roman world. We have some understanding of that, don't we? If you've ever been there or you've even seen pictures of some of the magnificent cathedrals in our world, St. Peter's Basilica, for example, the Sistine Chapel. I've been there. I've seen that. I mean, the buildings themselves are worth a fortune. Enormous wealth on display in the materials that are used, in the art that was commissioned when they were constructed, in the fixtures, the furnishings that have been added. Beautiful buildings, but the religion taking place in those beautiful cathedrals is worthless. The Roman system is a lie. You have these beautiful cathedrals, but you have religion taking place in those buildings that represents a stench in the nostrils of God. Architectural, artistic beauty matched with spiritual bankruptcy. It takes place in our world, was taking place right here in Christ's world. It's a good lesson for us. Beware associating spirituality with places. I've heard people say it well-meaning, but I've heard them say, you know, in some of these buildings, I just, I just sense the presence of God. They're so ornate and so beautiful and so massive. You just sense the presence of God. Don't confuse your feelings with facts. You can have a sense of awe based upon architecture and all that sort of thing. It has nothing to do, nothing to do 
with whether God's approving presence is known there. Don't forget that the earliest believers were severely persecuted. Some of them having to meet in places like the catacombs. Meeting, as it were, in the tomb section, in the graveyard. But the Lord is pleased with the worship being offered there. We should never confuse beautiful religious buildings with beautiful religion. Not one and the same. Thank God for beautiful buildings. Thank God for the buildings constructed here. But what God is most concerned about is not where we're meeting, but what is represented in our meeting. And that's a good lesson for us on the individual level as well, because just like you have buildings and worship that takes place within those buildings, so you have a house given to you by God for this time you're living. And there's what people see, but then there's what's going on in your own heart. And what is most important to God is not seeing like men see, but He sees down into the depths of our soul and the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts and what is foremost in terms of our loves and our priorities. And don't forget, we are commanded to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are right to recognize that we don't live up to that standard. Therefore, salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. But you're wrong if you think that that's still not a commandment, because it is. So I'm not saved by keeping the commandments. I'm saved by God's Son. Yet as one of God's sons and daughters, as a child of God now, I am to be striving to love the Lord my God with all that I am. And so just putting our body in a place of worship doesn't mean we're worshipers. Putting our body in a place of worship doesn't mean we're worshiping on this Sunday morning. What's most important is not what people see, but what's going on in the depth of our soul. So the disciples, perhaps as I said with that statement of Jesus, your house will be left to you desolate in their minds. They now begin to talk about the temple complex, and they're pointing out the beauty of the buildings to Jesus. And the buildings were beautiful. How does our Lord respond? Verse 2, He answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? I mean, He refocuses. You know, I'm sure they're walking and talking, and there's been some reference made to the building. So He refocuses their attention on those buildings. Do you see these things? Truly, I say to you, once again, here's our Lord speaking with authority. You can take this to the bank. Not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. He not only says, what you see will be destroyed, He says what you see will be completely destroyed. It is going to be decimated. There will be Virtually nothing left. Not one stone upon another that will not be torn down. Now that's not a, a statement you can just walk past, is it? That's quite a prediction. One of the architectural wonders of the world, something that Herod had built for his legacy. It's going to be torn down. All of it. Well, that's exactly what happened in a very short time, just 40 years or so from the time Jesus spoke these words. It was all torn down. The Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem and that temple complex in the year A.D. 70. Listen to the account of the destruction from the Jewish historian of the time, Flavius Josephus. He writes this, Now as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder because there remained none to be objects of their fury, for they would not have spared any had there remained any other such work to be done. Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple, but should leave as many of the towers standing as were of the greatest eminency. So leave some of it alone. Josephus goes on to say, that is, Vesalius and Hippicus, and Mariamne, these three towers, 
and so much of the wall as enclosed the city on the west side. So the western wall. This wall was spared in order to afford a camp for such as were to lie in garrison, as were the towers also spared in order to demonstrate to posterity what kind of city it was and how well fortified which the Roman valor had subdued. But for all the rest of the wall, it was so thoroughly laid, even with the ground, by those that dug it up to the foundation, that there was left nothing to make those that came thither afterward believe it had ever been inhabited. Close quote. It was so thoroughly demolished that if that wall, that one section of the wall had not been left, if those three towers had not been left, no one would have ever believed that anything was there. What Jesus says as they come out of this temple complex is exactly what happened just a few decades later. What does that tell you about Jesus? You've heard this. This is well known by you, but there's a logical set of possible decisions that someone has to make about Jesus when you meet with statements like this. Either he was a liar, not just this statement, but all the statements of Jesus. Take them into account. What do we believe about Jesus of Nazareth? He's either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. He is who he claimed to be. You can't take the claims of Jesus and water them down to make him the kind of Jesus you want him to be. You have to take the statements as they were, and then make a decision about him. Because he didn't make mild claims. He said he was one with the Father. Philip says, show us the Father. It'll be enough for us. Jesus says to Philip, Philip, you've been with me so long, you don't know who I am? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's claiming to be one with God. Claimed he had come from heaven. The one who ascends into heaven is the same one who descended from heaven, which is to say he has an eternal existence. He didn't just come to be when his human nature received through a virgin conception and birth, because in his divine nature, the eternal son has always been. So you have the eternal son of God taking to himself an additional nature so that now in his human nature has a beginning in time. But in this one person, you have the one who is both God and man, fully God, truly God, and truly human. This is what he's saying. This is no small claim. Claim to have the authority to forgive sins. Remember the time he says to a man, your sins are forgiven, and the religious leaders are all up in arms. How can you say your sins are forgiven? Well, if you have a hard time believing that, which is harder? To say to a man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take your bed, get up, and walk home when you can't walk. But so that you'll understand the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Take your bed up and go home. And the man does it right there in their presence, right there in their sight. Claimed the authority to judge their worship in the temple so that he cleanses it twice because he's defending the honor of his father. This is his father's house. Claimed that he'd be crucified, then raised from the dead, then return one day in glory. These are not mild claims. We can't pretend that they are. I mean, if anybody in this room made just one of those claims, we only have three choices. You are lying. That is, you know you're not what you say you are. Somebody in this room stands up and says, oh, by the way, I'm the Son of God. All right. You're either a liar. You know you're not what you say you are. Or you're out of your mind. You really believe it, but you're a loon. Or you would truly be the one you claim to be. And of course, we know you're not because we know the one who is. But the point is, you take Jesus and you evaluate his claims, you've got to make one of those three choices. You can't make Jesus, Jesus, the good man. You know, he wasn't really the son of God, but he was a good man. Or Jesus, the prophet. You know, he was right about a lot of things, but wrong about who he was. That doesn't work. No, you take what he claimed and he is who he claimed to be or he isn't in which case you should reject him. But when he makes statements like this, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And 40 years later, 
something that was unimaginable to the Jewish people, but probably unimaginable to all of the citizens of that area, that Herod's shining example of his legacy would be torn to the ground and nothing left. And it happens 40 years later. This is amazing. This is amazing. And this serves as a bridge to the rest of what he's going to talk about throughout Matthew 24, which goes far beyond that immediate judgment to talk about the rest of world history to the end of the age when he'll return from heaven to the earth, bringing judgment and salvation. James Montgomery Boyce commented, during the preceding days, Jesus had made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, prophesied destruction for Israel in cursing the fig tree, cleansed the temple, and entered into debates with a religious establishment, which he repeatedly won. Then in exalting the poor widow and her offering, he's talking about Mark's account of this, in exalting the poor widow and her offering, he passed judgment on the religious leadership of Israel. Now Jesus left the temple for good. The cross awaited him. The Olivet Discourse formed a fitting bridge to Jesus' final days. It was his final address, his farewell prophecy. Verse 3, now as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Notice their questions have to do with two things. When will these things happen that, that you just talked about? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? A when question, a what question? Timing, timing. When will all this happen? How will we recognize it? But even as they ask the question, they're still in confusion because they're thinking all of that takes place in their lifetime. What else has Jesus clearly spoken about regarding future judgment? I mean, if His judgment on the city of Jerusalem is fulfilled down to the final detail, if He gets all that right, then we need to ask, what else has He spoken of in terms of judgment that has not yet happened, but you can be sure it will take place just as He said? Listen to Luke 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told Him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Right? There's some tragedy that happens in this world, bringing it into our own day, some tragedy, 9-11, for example, happens in our world, and immediately the world is shaken. It's sobered. Life doesn't go on forever. Death is real. It could happen in a moment when I didn't expect it. And so people become familiar again with their mortality. I can tell you, those who were here, you can attest to this. The Sunday after 9-11, churches were full. Our Lord's comment on events like that, when the blood of so many people is shed, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than everybody else? That's why that happened to them? No, here's what I'm telling you. You're all sinners. And unless you repent, you're on your way to perishing. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? I mean, that's what you take away from events like that, you know, tragic events in our world, that the people who suffer those things, they must have been worse than me. The reason why they suffer those things and I don't must be that they did something to deserve that. They did something that explains their perishing. Our Lord's answer to that is no. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What is Jesus doing? He's saying there's a judgment coming upon all humanity. And if you're not found in the safety of God's provision for sinners, if you're not found in the safety of His grace, if you're not found in the safety of His forgiveness... If you're not found, let's bring the whole New Testament now into this, if you're not found in the safety of His Son, if you're not found in the safety of Christ, you're going to perish. You will perish. Does Jesus have it right? Can you trust what He says? Will what He says come true? John 3.16, For God so loved the world 
that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Aren't you grateful that just as Jesus' promises about judgment will prove to be exactly true, so Jesus' promises about forgiveness and acceptance with God, if you have faith in Him, will prove to be exactly true. Your forgiveness, the promises of your forgiveness are as real and trustworthy as His promises of judgment. Isn't that wonderful? Amen? Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It's not an intellectual problem, dear ones. The reason people don't believe it's not an intellectual issue. It's a sin issue. It's because their works are evil and they love their sin. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Matthew 8, verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. This man had amazing perception. He understands the authority of Jesus. All you have to do is say a word and the whole universe responds. Just say it. You don't have to come under my roof. I'm not worthy to have you in my house. But if you just speak the word, I know my servant will be made well. What amazing faith. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. What faith there is in this Gentile man, but I've not seen it in, among my people. Not faith like this. I tell you, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you think about this? I think about this. When I pray for the people I know personally and love, whom I don't believe know Jesus, I pray for them for their salvation, thinking about the awful reality of a judgment that will never end. We've all experienced awful things, but all those awful things one day on this side of eternity come to an end, whatever it is. But when you talk about the judgment that Jesus describes, there is no end. It is conscious, guilt-ridden, with the knowledge that you deserve it. Judgment. Anguish. Pain. Forever. Thrown into the outer darkness in that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you believe. And the servant was healed at that very moment. There's the sign. Jesus tells the truth. He's the truth teller. He's the truth in bodily form. You can trust what He says about judgment. City of Jerusalem, you can trust what He says about judgment. But sinner, before whom the gospel has been set forth, God's mercy to you, set before you, receive My Son and you'll be saved. You walk away from Him and you perish without Him, you can be sure everything Jesus says about your judgment, you'll know it forever. And you will be conscious of it for forever. That what Jesus said about judgment was perfectly true. Matthew 13, 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. 
and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them in the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Do you have ears? Do you have ears? Are you listening? So... Jesus says, do you see these beautiful buildings? They're all coming down. All coming down to the earth. Not one stone left upon another. And 40 years later, it happened just like He said. Who was, who is Jesus of Nazareth? He is the Son of God. The only Savior. By the way, the destruction of the temple gave that message too. Just like God's judgment is absolutely true and real, so God's way of delivering sinners is singular. There's only one way to be saved, and it's God's Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. The wrath of God abides on him. You have Jesus or you're lost. And the destruction of the temple sent that message because remember, when Jesus dies... In that temple, the veil that separated the most holy place from the other parts of the temple, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. I mean, at the moment that Jesus gave up His Spirit, Mark 15, 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed His last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing Him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. What's the significance of the tearing of that veil from top to bottom? There's no more offering to be given. There's no more sacrifice to be offered. The sacrifice for sinners now has been offered. In the same way when the temple is torn down from top to bottom, there's no place for your sacrifices anymore. There's never been that kind of religion ever in the life of the nation Israel since that day and will never be because what Jesus did is done. It's finished. So the judgment that you're being warned about is coming. And the only way to be delivered has been set forth. You don't see Him because He's in the heavens, but He's coming again. You can see Him with the eyes of faith through the proclamation of the Gospel. You can believe in Him through the proclamation of the Gospel. You can love Him and embrace Him and trust Him alone for your salvation through the proclamation of the Gospel, but you won't see Him again until He returns from heaven to earth to save His people in a time of great tribulation. Well, the church will see Him earlier than that because I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. We'll get into that as we get into the Olivet Discourse and talk about that. The point is this, everything Jesus says is true. And you'll see Him if you die before that day because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You'll see your Savior face to face, but not yet in your resurrected body. That will await the future. When will this happen? What will be the sign? Jesus gives the answer as He goes on to give a description of the times before the time. Verses 5 and following, we'll get into that tonight where he talks about multiplied deceivers, wars and rumors of wars, troubles on the earth of all kinds, worldwide evangelism and persecution. But let me wrap it up this morning with these few observations. It's good to see that his disciples are not rebuked for wanting to know what Jesus is willing to reveal. They ask questions. They're not rebuked for their questions. He's going to give them answers. It's amazing to me, but reflecting back, way back, ancient history, 1970s and 80s, way back there, all you had to do to pack a church out was have a prophecy conference. Anybody else remember those things? So we're going to talk about the end times, and man, boom, everybody's there. Why? Because we're curious about these things, aren't we? We want to know these things. Guess what? There's nothing wrong with that. What the Lord has revealed belongs to us. It's not wrong to wonder about these things, study these things. It's good. But 
where does Jesus leave His disciples? In a position of striving to know what they can know, but resting in God's knowledge of what they can't know. And that's where we're left. We do our best to get our minds around what has been revealed. We'll do that as we study this section. But then we have to rest in knowing that when the Lord brings all this to pass, there will likely be elements of it that surprise us. When you go back to the first coming of Jesus, it's amazing. What you see is those Old Testament prophecies had literal fulfillments, and yet the people who were in step with what was happening, in every case I can think of, we'll talk about this some as we make our way through Matthew 24, but in every case I can think of, they had special revelation at that moment that allowed them to walk in step with what Scripture had previously revealed. We're small, aren't we? We're small. So we have to rest in what we can't know. But what we must know is that Jesus is Lord. And all of our futures are determined by our relationship to Him. He is Lord. So let me ask you, what is your relationship to the One who can tell us the end from the beginning? What is your relationship to Him who promises judgment upon all sinners perishing, upon all sinners who don't repent? What's your relationship to Him? The One who is set before us as the singular answer for our sin problem, our guilt problem before God. The only One in whom we will ever know salvation. What's your relationship to Him? Because what I don't want for you or anybody I love is one day you're in hell, conscious and suffering, knowing that God's mercy was set forth before you in His Son, He would have gathered you under His wings like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. You were not willing. And all those who know the mercy of God in Jesus would say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for this time in Your Word, this time in this chapter, this marvelous chapter of Your Holy Word. Would You guide us? Would You teach us? Would You strengthen us to grasp the things that You've revealed? Would You strengthen us to rest in what we can't know, but to know that Jesus is Lord? And Lord, would You strengthen us in this spiritual war zone we're in right now to live for You every day, striving forward to love You with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And in that way, Lord, submit to and walk in all that You've revealed in Your Holy Word as You form Your Son in your people. We ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.